You are Locked On AFL, your daily AFL podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome to Locked On AFL. I'm your host, Kane Pittman. Particularly with a pathetic effort from Pitt. I mean, it was the most disgraceful display I've ever seen from a big film. And that's pretty hard on an individual, but he's going to have to live with that. And alongside me, as always, is Josh Lloyd. Lloyd is Lloyd. Lloyd to Lloyd. 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 Kane, you got any uh, plans to be in any birthing suites on Derby Day? <laughs> Uh, no, no. Okay. Uh, I, I certainly hope not. Let's just say that. Um, yeah, I, I just sort of throw that out there. We don't need to talk about that uh, that uh, situation or incident that was uh, you know, created a minor controversy last night, but we got footy to talk about. I just thought it was something funny. And we have got stuff. Let's, let's just go straight into it, Kane, because I don't reckon we've played this drop in a while, and I want to do it right now. We got finals coming up this weekend, semi-finals, Geelong and Collingwood, St Kilda and Richmond and Kane, who's under pressure for you? Yeah, I thought I could have gone one player here. I thought I could have just gone straight up Tom Hawkins, but I didn't think that that would be 100% fair to him. I've gone the whole Geelong forward line uh in this one and and the reason why I could have just gone Tom Hawkins is because I think uh, when you look at the Cats and you look at their finals performance over the last few years, everyone ties it all together. Uh, I would probably just like to tie last year into this year. It's been pretty well publicized last year. Tom Hawkins, four straight behinds in the game against Collingwood. They only lost that by 10 points. Then he kicked five behinds uh, on, fr- on Thursday night against Port Adelaide in a game they only lost by 16 points. Uh, and, of course, we know that, yes, he bounced back last year. They beat West Coast, which at the time was actually a little bit of an upset and he kicked four goals, and he was fantastic. But then he was suspended in a final against Richmond that they only lost by 19 points. So Tom Hawkins, you could absolutely say that he potentially cost the Cats a chance at a flag last year. He kicked poorly on Thursday night against Port Adelaide. If he had a kick straight, potentially they could have won that game on Thursday. So there's no doubt Tom Hawkins, uh, after last year and what went down, not only in the first final, uh, but the fact that he got suspended uh, to kick five, go- uh, five behinds from six shots on goal, uh, on Thursday night, uh, he's going to kick straight because we spoke about the accuracy of the forwards. But I, I'm not just looking at Tom Hawkins here. I'm looking at the other forwards as well. Gary Oblett only had 10 disposals uh, in this game. Luke Dalhouse had 16, but wasn't a real factor. Obviously, we spoke about the fact he was in the midfield a little bit, but he didn't didn't score. Did not have a scoring shot uh, in this game. Graham Myers didn't have a scoring shot from his seven disposals and the other one Gary Rowan only had five touches and he didn't get a scoring shot so I'm looking at Ablett Rowan and Myers as well when I'm looking at this Cats forward line they got to produce and the other thing is is that they've got to produce that they struggled there but they're going up against the team that's one of the best defense in the game pretty close to it in Collingwood and you got to handle you know, the guys that are down there we know Darcy Moore and Brayden Maynard have had massive seasons but it's not just those guys like that defense has been one of the best yeah best defenses all season in fact in terms of just points allowed against they were third behind Port and Richmond but yeah marginally it was, they had seven extra points kicked against them than Richmond and 12 extra points kicked against them compared with Port so they are right up there in terms of the best defense in the entire league and 
yeah, if, if it's not Hawkins, if he's struggling, if he's having these finals yips, if that's what you want to call it, then who else is stepping up? Because if you don't execute at a high level, these Collingwood defenders will not only you know, make it hard for you, but they'll also be able to rebound. And we've seen you know, Maynard and more in particular be really, really strong at doing that all season. So that's a, an extra level of complexity that does have to, to, to you know, this Geelong team's got to overcome. You know, they had it with Port last week, didn't work, and now they've got you know, another really top defense to take on. No doubt. I mean, you just look at the goal kickers. Clearly, they struggled. They kicked five goals, 12, so accuracy came into it. But you've got a goal out of Zach Tui and a goal out of Joel Salwood, two guys that don't kick a lot of goals. So uh, it's got to be the, your regular goal kickers. And, and Gary Rowan, in particular, has been such an X factor for uh, the Cats all season long. He's really turned games. Uh, but he went completely missing on Thursday night against Port Adelaide. So, uh, you know, whether or not they go down the path of bringing in Radagalia as a second marking target and playing him up forward as well. I'm not 100% sure if they want to try and curtail the ability of the Pies to uh, come through and take those intercept marks. I'm not 100% sure. We'll see which way they go there, but there's no doubt uh, their forwards struggled on Thursday. Yeah, they did. And that's that's going to be the challenge here for Geelong to avoid you know, going out in straight sets, which is something that every team wants to avoid. For me, I've got the St. Kilda midfield as, as a group that's under pressure. Not you know, Maybe that's a bit unfair because they, they won the game. But they were smashed in that fourth quarter. They were they were smashed um, in terms of inside 50s, in terms of providing opportunities for the forwards. It was really their big men that provided the impetus for that win against the Bulldogs with Max King taking a lot of grabs and, and down back Dougal Howard really you know, providing some strong play. Their midfield, I, I don't think, was quite up to where it needed to be against the Bulldogs. And now they go up against a Richmond team who's hurting. They've got to take on Trent Cotchin and Dustin Martin and... Every other Dion Prestia in his second game back, and every other midfielder that they throw in there that seems to have success, and they've got to do it without the bloke who's been supplying the ball to their midfield in Paddy Ryder. So that's why they're under pressure. They've got to step up their performance from last game, where they had the advantage of Ryder being dominant. They don't have that this week, and now they've got to try and win the ball ahead of these Richmond clearance monsters, and that's going to be extra tough for them, I think, this week. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see the impact that not having Paddy Ryder in the center. Uh, has on this team. They actually were plus four in center clearances on the game. So they won the ball out of the middle okay, but it was around the stoppages where they got smashed. They were minus six in stoppage clearances in the game. And that's where the Bulldogs, you know, kind of similar to Richmond, can really hurt you when they win those stoppage clearances and spread uh, from half back in the wing position. So, you know, if you're St. Kilda, you're really going to want to uh, cut into that gap. I think if they're minus six or more, uh, from stoppage clearances, they're going to have they're going to have big trouble because uh, I don't think that you're going to find the same success down back that you had against the Bulldogs against Richmond. The forward line's more potent. We expect Tom Lynch is going to be back down there as well, uh, which then frees up Jack Rewald a little bit. So yeah, there's there's no doubt. I mean, I, I think just looking at the disposal counts in this game, the Saints only 284 disposals. So that was down uh, a little bit from where we ha- have sometimes been. Uh, during the home and away season. And even even their major ball winners. I mean, their major ball winner in the game was Dougal Howard, as you pointed to, the tall defenders. There was obviously plenty of opportunities uh, down there to to win the footy. But Hunter Clark had 19, Dan Hannabury 19. Then you have to go down to Zach Jones uh, with 16. So And even Jack Steele only had 16 in this game as well. So their prime movers probably didn't get their hands on the footy as much as they had in the past. And no doubt uh, being dominated in the fourth quarter played an played a impact there. Now, maybe that's being a bit unfair to St. Kilda because in round four, they beat Richmond. They knocked them off by 26 points. 
Now, some of that was because they kicked a ridiculous 15 goals three, and we know that that's not something that's going to happen every week. But you know, if you can kick like that, it's a it's a key. But they did that without Paddy Ryder. They had Roel Marshall playing exclusively in the ruck against Toby Nankervis, which is what we're going to get this week most likely. Um, they won uh, clearances, 33-29 in that one, and they had more disposals just by two, but yeah, plus two disposals, yeah, plus four floor, eh, try again, plus four clearances, plus five hitouts in the Marshall-Nankervis matchup earlier in the season. Now, that was when Richmond was uh, barely going, and it did uh, you know, result in St. Kilda kicking a ridiculously high uh, yeah, conversion rate. So maybe I'm being a little bit unfair, but at least they've got the blueprint for almost this exact scenario taking place where Marshall takes on Nankervis and they can yeah, pretty much just keep it even in terms of you know, clearances and disposals and getting first use to their to their midfielders. But they're going to need to do better than what they did last week in that game. Billings had 25, Steele had 21, Hill had 19. So it was those guys, Yeah, Ross had 16, that was those guys getting the ball versus the display from the midfield that was probably subpar on the weekend. Yeah, going back to that game, that was when we were discussing on the show whether Paddy Ryder would get back in the team because El Marshall was playing so well. They were able to find a pretty good balance, particularly with Marshall playing as a forward through the season. But, eh, you know, this isn't something that they haven't had to do before. It's just been a little while. So you would prefer not to have to adjust like this in the second week of the finals in a, in a do-or-die game, but uh, that's what they're faced with. It is, and... We've got some other news. Let's We'll talk more about these games later in the week, of course. But a couple of things we do need to talk about. Just a quick note, Kane. Tonight, the AFLW draft is on. Um, for those of you who are you know, interested or getting in, want to get into the AFLW, which will be taking place over the summer, the draft is on tonight. A couple of a, uh, AFL father-daughter selections. Most interesting one, I think, is, is Nathan Burke's daughter, Alice, is said to be picked up by St. Kilda, while Nathan Burke is the coach of the Bulldogs AFLW team. So I don't reckon that's happened too often that a... Um, a coach has to coach against one of his offspring. So that'll happen for this upcoming season. Also news that free agency will start on the Friday after the grand final, so in a couple of weeks' time. But now what we're going to really dig into in this segment is looking at the two teams eliminated, the West Coast and the Western Bulldogs, and sort of where they're sitting in terms of their list and what, I guess, went wrong for them uh, over the weekend and the course of the season. The Eagles, we know, started out really poorly up in Queensland this season and they weren't able to get things going, went back to Perth, really turned it around and then sort of petered out as the season came to a conclusion. Lost a couple of games up north, didn't look at their best and then knocked out in the first week of the finals. They didn't adjust well to the hub at the beginning of the season. So what are they looking at in this offseason with free agency coming up and trade period and all that sort of thing? I think they'll probably just run it back next year because, uh, yeah, you spoke about the fact they petered out towards the end of the year. That did coincide with them having to jump on a plane and go back to Queensland. And you can say what you want. I mean, should they have been better? Yeah, probably. I mean, you look at a a team like Port Adelaide. uh, I think I saw a stat yesterday that came out. It was basically teams' records at home and away or interstate, uh, I should say. And I think Port were... 8-1, Eight and one, and you remember back to the first hub when West Coast were really struggling, and 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 uh, Port Adelaide were just on fire. And I remember at the time, I had a conversation with Hamish Hartlett, and he just said, "Listen, we we guess we love the hub." He's like, "Is it ideal? No, but we get a chance to play footy, and we're embracing the the time we're having together. We've got a pretty young group, and we're just hanging out and, and having a good time. And it was just the complete opposite with West Coast, and uh, we we spoke about it." 
on the show, but you just had concerns about them having to travel again because they didn't lose in Perth. I mean, they looked invincible and they looked like a team that was going to roll through to the top four. Somehow they missed out again. And similar to last year, they lost to Hawthorne in the last round. This year, they lost to the Bulldogs a couple of weeks out from finals. It's cost them a top four spot. And sure, they would have had to travel anyway, and maybe they would have lost, but uh, it was a disappointing end for them. But the, the reason why I think that they will run it back, and yes, they are they're starting to get a little bit older. So when I look at the age of the list, obviously Josh Kennedy is 33, Shannon Hearns 33, Schofield is retiring, he's 31, uh, Lewis Jetta 31, Nick Nat is 30, which you know sometimes you have to remind yourself he is over 30 now. He's had so many injuries that have unfortunately taken a couple seasons from him, but injury prone and 30 plus. He's such a vital player for them. Shuey's 30. And then uh, they've got a bunch of other guys that are around the 28, 29 mark. But uh, as far as West Coast go, so many injuries towards the end of the year. And we looked at it as a positive that they made those six changes coming into the final, but perhaps it wasn't ideal uh, to bring those guys, all those guys back without having one run before the finals. Yeah, I'm sort of in the same boat there with you. I don't really see them you know, making wholesale changes. There's a bunch of guys in that prime-ish type of area. The young guys that came in, Waterman and Allen in particular, were really good. Uh, as younger players coming through, they felt like they had a pretty strong mix of uh, of players in age groups. You know, guys like Dom Sheed's only 25. Yeah, Brad Shepard, all Australians, only 29. Like These are guys that are they're right in the prime of what they're doing. And a couple of those young guys, they welcome back Ali Yo again, who just turned 27. He didn't play down the, the back half of the season when they really struggled. Not sure whether that's just a, a Yo issue or not, but it's definitely doesn't help. So I think that there is, yeah, I wouldn't expect major changes and them to get super aggressive in terms of trading guys out or bringing in big names or anything like that. I think it's more of a case of just rolling it back, hoping for a little bit more health uh, through the season. And hopefully the season isn't as disrupted and they don't get off to such a poor start that they have to claw their way back from and they can settle themselves in. And you'd expect they could be a a, a top four team again, given the talent they have without expecting massive drop-offs from a lot of these guys. Yeah, I mean, McGovern is is only 28, and it's kind of surprising that he is that young. So he's still got a, a number of years as long as he can he can actually uh, stay healthy. But then I, I look at some of the other guys that they've got at each end of the ground, and uh, you know, Tom Barras is still only 24. He's obviously been an important player. Jackson Nelson, he's only 24, and then up forward, as we've sort of spoke about, Oscar Allen uh, has been a fantastic addition, and Jack Darling's only 28. So they've got the guys at both end of the ground. The midfield is aging a little bit, but then they still have uh, Gaff, who's 28, and Tim Kelly's only 26. So Tim Kelly had a bit of a down year, but uh, you know, kind of tough circumstances for him. And, and I know everyone was in the same boat, so maybe you don't want to make excuses for him. But when you think about the reasons why uh, he wanted to leave Geelong and go back to West Coast, I mean, it couldn't have been a worse year for him. And I think his performance uh, did show uh, when he was outside of Western Australia. He was definitely nearing... Uh, that top form before they had to go on the road again. So I, I just don't look at the West Coast list and see any area where they, they really desperately need anyone. They seem like they've still got a, a pretty full list on, on either end of the ground. Uh, they've got the depth, and, and I think that they're, they're going to be really good again next year, particularly uh, when you consider the fact that uh, they'll be back at Perth, hopefully, we hope, that it's a normal season, and they'll get those 11 games over at Optus, and uh, they'll probably win their fair share of those and get themselves right back into the finals mix again. What about my blokes? The Western Bulldogs, uh, one of the form teams heading into the finals, won five out of their last six, almost snuck it uh, over the line against the Saints. 
But the questions continue to remain uh, about, you know, I guess the, the big man stocks. The midfield is one of the best, if not the best, midfield in the entire league. But you have some troubles in other areas with you know, the constant speculations about getting uh, a, a tall uh, defender, another Ruckman in there as well. Lots of talk about the forward line. I seem to, uh, seem to think that Aaron Norton works better without Josh Bruce. They remember, they're also going to get probably the number one rated kid in the draft in Jamara Ugal-Hagen to come in. Now, he's not necessarily going to have a, a big impact as a 19-year-old key forward but that's the idea that he moves in there along with Norton as they as they uh, grow together so I think that'll be yeah that, that'll be their plan for the forward line but lots of uh, getting a key back is is not an easy thing to do they brought in Alex Keith over the last trade period that he was really good for most of the season struggled on the weekend in his first final um but yeah, getting another guy in there because it's Keith and then it's you know, sort of smaller guys. Easton Wood's not a particularly tall guy. Uh, Zane Cordy's not you know, super tall as a uh, as a key defender. They're playing Ryan Gardner as a key defender. I don't really think he's that guy there. And they've made plays at Jake Carlisle in the past, at Jake Lever in the past, trying to get those young key defenders in. And it hasn't really come to fruition outside of you know, getting Keith this year. So while it's easy to say, I just get a tall defender. How many good tall defenders are just being... They were in on Dougal Howard as well, and they couldn't get that one over the line. So getting these sort of players is a lot easier said than done. The other position that Beveridge kind of hinted to after the game or in in the post-mortem of the loss to St. Kilda was the ruck position. We've spoke about it a lot. Uh, Tim English had some moments this year, but he also he, he just had moments where he was kind of dominated in, in games, and he's young, and I think Beveridge has stuck with him this year more through necessity than anything else. Uh, they wanted to to give him that game time and really give him the responsibility. And at times he he uh, he delivered. And you spoke just prior to the finals about his ability as the season wore on to have an impact around the ga- around the ground and take those contested marks, which does uh, give you the opportunity with the way that he's played there. Maybe we can play him a little bit more up forward and he can be that support for Norton or uh, he can be someone that isn't just pigeonholed to purely playing in the ruck. So would you go down the path of of getting a a veteran ruckman into the team? And there's there's going to be a few out there. And I know uh, these guys are, are certainly on the on their older end of the scale, but obviously Goldstein, who says that he wants to stay in North Melbourne, but he is... Uh, one guy that could be potentially attainable, Ben McAvoy. Another one is 30 years old at Hawthorne. Who knows? I mean, to, to me, it doesn't seem like there would be uh, much sense in him staying there, conti- uh, especially considering uh, they, they seem to want to play Segler as the number one ruckman basically all season long. Yeah, I saw those names mentioned today, and I'm not going to be... I'm not going to lie, like, given the age of them, it doesn't really... The Bulldogs team is extraordinarily young. I think average age is like 24. It, like, it's not an old team. So it's not like, my God, they have to make an impact this season, much like we think with the West Coast, who have got those guys who are 27 to 29. The Bulldogs guys are, are 23 to, to 25 in terms of their, their key players. So it's not like they need to make that impact. Getting, I've heard the name Braden Proust thrown around a little bit. Mm. I, I wouldn't mind that. Look, and it all depends on the cost. Like, are you giving up a first-round pick to get Todd Goldstein? because the Bulldogs can't afford to do that given they need picks to get Eugle Hagen with that number one pick in the draft. I'm not sure that they want to do that, but you can always find backup Ruckman around that you know, they're 24, 25, 26 years of age that haven't had an opportunity, and then maybe they can step up and, and be that sort of player. Goldstein obviously is a really, really good player, but how many years do you have left at this level? Is it a one-year thing? And then what you go, well, this is the year that we've got to do it rather than bring in someone else who can work with English. So I think if you, they look at their opponent from the weekend, the Rowan Marshall-Paddy Ryder combination was sort of what they can do with English, and English can 
do exactly what Marshall did, play around the ground. His skills are unbelievable. He reads the game fantastically. He just doesn't have the strength to necessarily go up against some of these bigger Ruckman, but just put him in there for periods of time and get someone else big in there. I don't know who that is. I'm not sure I'm totally in on guys like uh, Goldstein and McAvoy, though. So you would do that if you think you can win a flag in the next two years? Yep. So I guess, with particularly with a team like the Bulldogs, who are kind of sneakily young, um, because I, I think that when you think about the team that won the flag in 2016, sometimes people assume that they must be closer to their to their prime age bracket in terms of winning a flag. It's not necessarily the case. So I guess when we look at what the Bulldogs do this offseason, I think you're going to get a fair old indication of what uh, they think they can achieve. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, realistically, when we look at the Bulldogs, we've spoke about it all year and you've spoke about it all year that in patches, yeah, they look great. But... The, the reality is they didn't have a great record uh, against against great teams, did they? I mean, I know, I know they beat West Coast, but that, outside, that, that's of that, that, outside, yeah, so outside of that, they, they really didn't. So uh, I guess the question you would have to ask is, are they really that close or are they a team that's going to need another couple of years to get these guys uh, the experience? Well, the oldest bloke in their team that played on the weekend was Easton Wooden. He's 31. And there yeah. was no one else really at, at you know, close to that level. Libba's just turned 28. Alex Keith is 28. Like that they're they're the older older players here. Like they're, they're prime movers. Caleb Daniels twenty four. Bonton Pally is not even twenty five yet. Um, yeah, Bailey Smith is twenty. McRae has just turned twenty six. Like these are these are players who are still super super young in terms of you know, where they are in, in their footy. And Mitch Wallace is only twenty seven. He feel like he's been around forever. So mm. there's still a lot. Yeah, Bailey Williams, who was one of the, probably the most improved player in the league, he's twenty two. There's, uh, they've got a, a lot of years to get these guys. Like, if Bonson Pally's not even 25, like he's, four years' time, he's still going to be in his prime. So you, you still can find that guy. Now, finding the right player is is the tough thing, and I don't know who that, that player is. And it all if they say, hey, give us you know, pick 70 and, and take Todd Goldstein's contract, then you go, yeah, <laughs> no, no worries, I'll, I'll do it. If they say we want pick 20 and then a first round of next year, I'm not sure you want to do that. <laughs> Yeah, no, 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 no. That, that that does make sense. And and they have to be a little bit careful because we've seen it before. We've seen teams do it time and time again. When you try and take shortcuts and try and fast track uh, a group because you think you're close when reality, you know, maybe you're not as close as what you think you are. And, and clearly this year they were a fair way off the, the top couple anyway. Certainly yep. the top couple that were going to win a flag. So they'll be interesting to watch. All right. The uh, next thing we've got to talk about is where these games are being played on the weekend. Because teams who had a choice, the teams, the high finishing teams, Richmond and Geelong, where they wanted to play, the Tigers chose Metricon, Geelong chose the Gabba. Particular reasons behind that, Kane, do you think? Well, Richmond's, uh, Richmond's record at Metricon, you can see that it makes a lot of sense. Now, uh, they are literally staying basically five minutes away from Metricon as well. So there's no doubt uh, that from that point of view, it's a huge bonus for them. It essentially is a home ground that's been their home base for a long time now. Uh, the Saints have to jump on a bus for a couple of hours to get to the oh, ground. I so, it's look, three hours away for St Kilda. Yeah, and, and look, is that a huge deal? I don't know. Probably not, but it is certainly a comfort factor for Richmond. But when you look at their record at Metricon this season, they're 6-0 and with an average winning margin of 36 points. So they've played six games at Metricon. The Saints have played two, uh, three. Uh, they're 2-1 and one there. But the wins for Richmond, they certainly stand out. And some of these teams aren't all that good, but the marquee wins that they've had, Brisbane by 41 points, West Coast by 27 points, and then they beat the Cats by 26 points as well. So it certainly makes sense why Richmond would want to be there. It's been a, a home away from home for them this season, and they, they seem pretty comfortable there. 
it was just interesting to me that Richmond um, certainly jumped in and, and picked Metricon. The Cats were very keen to play at the Gabba, which I'm kind of curious about that decision to play at the Gabba. The Cats are 3-0 and there this season, but two of those wins came against North Melbourne and Essendon, so, you know, I, I don't know what you actually take away from that. They beat the Saints by 59 points as well, which was an impressive one, but the Pies have played seven games at the Gabba this year. Now, they're 4-3. and three. The record's not all that impressive, but they played the last six games of the home and away season at the Gabba. So it's certainly not a ground that they're unfamiliar with. I think yeah, that's true. Um, that, that is curious in terms of Geelong making that choice, but you, you've listed here the dimensions of these grounds, and, and the Gabba is one of the longest grounds. It's similar in terms of GMHBA, which is basically shaped like a rectangle. It's that long and narrow. The gap is not quite that long. It's very similar to it to an MCG sort of size, which I, th- I think Metricon squishes things up quite a bit in comparison. You know, 12 meters shorter than the Gabba, 16 meters narrower. That's quite a big difference when Geelong is used to either playing at GMHBA or playing at the MCG. Playing on those you know, larger grounds, I think their game style is more suited to that with what they do and, and how they play. So maybe that's, you know, it's not like, oh, well, Collingwood's played there all this time. It's like, well, what's going to actually suit us better and, and where we play and how we felt playing at this ground? And I think that would be the decision that's gone into it or the thought process behind the decision. Yeah, it's, it's curious because... The Cats have, I mean, the, the criticism of Geelong in the past is the fact that they haven't been able to cover ground at the MCG and they've been found out in finals. And so when you do look at the dimensions, as as you sort of pointed to, so the Gabba 170 by 150, the G's 171 by 146. So it, it's kind of surprising to, to read that. I mean, I guess I didn't know that they were that close. I knew the Gabba was uh, kind of uh, had, had wide wings. But it, it's almost identical to the MCG and then, as you sort of pointed to, GMHBA is 30 metres uh, skinnier, which which clearly makes a big difference for the Cats. They don't have to cover as much ground, particularly defensively, and they can sl- uh, slow things up a little bit. And also, other teams just really struggle at GMHBA because they're not used to having to to bring their ball movement in. And that's why you see so many uh, kicks go out of bounds on the full at GMHBA because they're just not used to those leading patterns. But I don't know. I mean, it's, it's just a curious one to me uh, because uh, we know the Cats have had big struggles and they've had struggles against Collingwood at the MCG over the years. They've played three games at Metricon this season, um, two and one, and the two wins were an 11-pointer against the Bulldogs where they were seven goals down and beating the Swans by six points. And the one they lost was against Richmond. So I wouldn't say they've been overly successful at Metricon. I'd say they're, yeah, despite the fact that games are against Essendon and North Melbourne at the Gabba, they you know, they were able to put away St. Kilda in, in pretty convincing fashion. So maybe that's it. It's like we've played actually better better footy at the Gabba this year versus Metricon where we've, we're two and one and the two wins were yeah, shaky for massive, massive chunks of those uh, contests. I do think that there is something to be said for the set, winning the center clearances at the Gabba. They always talk about it. There is a little bit more width inside 50. You can find a little bit more space. And so potentially the Cats like their chances if they can win the ball out of the middle and get those forwards some open space. And guys like Gary Rowan, as I was talking about, and Graham Myers and Gary Ablett, hopefully uh, for the Geelong's sake, can, can find some space in the forward half. And perhaps that, perhaps that goes into their thinking. But it's just such a fascinating year because, of course, uh, they probably could have played these games at Adelaide Oval uh, as well. They had the option of the Gabba Metricon or Adelaide Oval. So just a just a bizarre year uh, for those reasons. And, of course, the Cats did just come from a game at Adelaide Oval. So maybe 
Uh, maybe that would have been of some benefit. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But then I guess they might have had to travel as well. It's strange. It's strange that uh, all the different things that go into it. And for once, I, I guess the crowd doesn't really matter. I don't know what type of crowd they're going to get at Richmond St Kilda compared to Geelong and Collingwood. But uh, it's, it's just it's all fascinating. It is. We'll uh, be able to re-legislate these decisions next week when we find out who won and who lost and if they they make it. The Richmond one's a no-brainer. The Geelong one is a, a little bit more uh, you know, up in the air in terms of it's no real clear advantage either way. Well, they might think there is, but it, it's not as clear-cut as what Richmond's is. But, hey, it's going to be good footy. Um, hopefully, we don't get too much of the uh, the dewy conditions causing a problem. I don't think we really saw that in, in week one of the final. So, hopefully, fingers crossed, we get that continuing to be a trend throughout the rest of these. Kane, uh, we'll be back tomorrow to talk more footy. And... Um, Pretty exciting stuff coming up. Yeah, starting to get closer. Starting to get closer to the finals. No Thursday night footy this week, so we've got an extra day to wait. But uh, I think I think it's going to be worth it. I agree. Guys, subscribe. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. Give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts as well. And today, I'm going to leave you with a shout-out to Jackson Crabb. <laughs>